right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have one of my favorite guests, a returning guest. Her name is Roberta Glass. She runs the True Crime Podcast, which is broadcast through many channels. Her podcast, her YouTube channel, and uh, on other sources. She's done a lot of excellent interviews on a variety of different true crime subjects. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about, uh, we were planning to talk about the Central Park Five and the more recent docu- so-called documentary, pseudo-documentary that came out on Netflix, at least in my opinion, called When They See Us by uh, DuVernay is her name. But uh, the many things have happened in the very recent, since we agreed to do this interview, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's been arrested, R. Kelly's been arrested, so we can definitely cover those later on in the in the conversation, but um, this four-part series came out on Netflix, and uh, it makes it look like the police are, you know, we're causing, uh, we're looking for some innocent people to arrest and pin a crime on, but there's a lot more to the story. So, Roberta, are you there? Yes. Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. So, you suffered through when they see us. I've tried to watch it. It was, I couldn't make it all the way through, but uh, really the intro was this poor lady. And it's actually had serious real world implications because two of the prosecutors in the case, both uh, Letterer and Fairstein, have both had uh, uh, incurred career damage in person. I think, uh, you know, their, per, their reputational damage from this documentary. But what were your thoughts about uh, when they see us? Well, I knew it was going to be bad when I heard the announcement that it was coming to Netflix. I sent it to you and I said, oh, this is going to be horrible. (laughs) I had a feeling because it's not a documentary. It's a dramatic, um, what do you call it? A dramatic, I mean, it's a fiction, right? Right. It's a movie. So you have that and it really pulls on the heartstrings and it makes these five still convicted um, people, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever you can say, they never went to court to try to, to try to, you know, vacate themselves, which should give you deja vu, like the, um, West Memphis three, very kind of similar sleight of hand going on. And in addition to that, there's a lot of, you know, backroom deals done with people like, especially de Blasio was really responsible for pushing through this, um, payout that they got. Um, which was $41 million. In 2014, and, yeah, so fairly right, recently. Yeah. Right, and, you know, uh, de Blasio came on the scene. He was like a, not a favorite, not really anyone's favorite at the time, I mean, you know, at the time, and he really needed the New York City black community support. And he was often accused during the um, campaign, his campaign, of using his marriage... Um, to a black woman and his son as kind of props for um, to further his political career. But, you know, what has been written is that he made a deal with Reverend Al Sharpton to push this through in exchange for Reverend Al Sharpton's support. So and as someone who's lived in New York City a very long time, that's not unusual. We're used to Al Sharpton. I don't I mean. He has a reputation as an extortionist. I mean, I'm going to say a lot of really unpopular things. And okay. what's more surprising about when they see us is, you know, I mean, you know, feminist true crime groups, 
and all you know the women there are boohooing over these woman beaters and if not rapists which is another kind of complicated part of this case right. they assaulted they were convicted for assaulting two other two other men and they insulted seven people all together in the park that night right so so the, so the the original crime took place on April 19th 1989 there were groups of young men who were and these guys were 14 15 16 running around central park uh for people who are too young to remember this case but uh and they they were assaulting people one guy looked like somebody somebody said when after they assaulted him it looked like somebody poured a bucket of blood on his head. That's how badly he was beaten. And then something happened where they actually thought that the original victim uh, of this assault and rape was murdered actually that night. Yes. And so one of, yeah, one so, of them said, I, I know, I know who did the murder. They left her for dead. She would, was discovered by two other passerbyers way later, yeah, you know, very and, late in the night, like a uh, three or 4 a.m. She right. wasn't supposed to survive. She had horrific injuries. Lost she, 80% of her blood. Yeah, it's actually uh, kind of a miracle that she survived. Like one of her eyes was out of its socket. Like really horrible stuff. Um, I mean, this is night. I mean, the researching for this was nightmarish to, to go through. And I found I could only do it while listening to classical music because it's so. This They say, they all say we went to the park to rob joggers and bicyclists for fun. And even one of them, after after giving his, um, you know, part of his confession said, well, you know, smashing the jogger's head with a brick, that was fun. Right. I mean, it's like kind of a clockwork orange. Yes. Uh, as nightmarish ultraviolence. Yeah. yeah, like getting involved in ultraviolence. For entertainment. Yeah, for right. a little bit of the, it'll sharpen you up a bit for a little ultraviolence, like just going out to beat people up. Yeah, pretty incredible. And it happened kind of early in the evening, like 9 or 10 p.m., relatively early after dark. But, uh, you know, it, uh, yeah, so they were. So, what ha sorry, so they were going through continue. the park, you know, you know, um, looking for people to looking for um, bicyclists and joggers to rob. And one bicyclist was nearly assaulted and got away. And if you know the Central Park Loop, once he made his way around the loop, he he called it into the police. So while they were, there were 33 men uh, by one of the um, convicted's own account, all wilding in the park. That was the word at the time used. And so as they were going from person to person committing violence, they were getting called in. You know, um, mm -hmm. witnesses were calling in saying, calling the police. So... They were spotted all the way through the park. And what's interesting about when they see us is that they're just hanging out in the park in the beginning of uh, in the Netflix. Uh, I don't know. What do you call it? Movie. Yeah. The Netflix movie. Fictional they're film. They're just hanging yeah. out in the park, listening to Public Enemy fight the power and enjoying the like, you know, uh, spring air. Right. <laughs> Nothing to do at nine o'clock, which any New Yorker will tell you. You know, a huge group of boys that are not playing sports, they're not playing music, they're not, they're just walking around aimlessly. Uh, you know, you would walk the other way, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, so the, the, the time... It's so of, absurd. Right. I mean, it's so absurd when I saw that, when they're just like listening to 
music, and of course, politically charged music. And this whole case has been used uh, for political means, you know. Right. It's changed. It's become, I mean, it's been 1989, so time has passed. And these guys are being fated around in a a real Kosselev. You know, it's like the echoes of West Memphis 3. And people are talking about how, when they see us, is actually a very um, florid title because it's like, oh, you're just being racist towards black people. But in reality, these guys were involved in criminal activities. They were arrested that same night. And, uh, you know, I think they didn't find her, the girl who was assaulted until 1.30. But, woman, uh, yeah. Yeah, woman. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. It's absolutely changed. So, so basically, but what, what's interesting about this case, it's a lot like the West Memphis 3, is you can go back and actually look at the video um, interrogations that took place two days later. Um, so, you know, there was, they were arrested, but they were also brought back in, of my understanding, for these interviews with their parents, right? Right, and they were, and some were, some. I'm a little confused. Some were held. Some, um, some were implicated by uh, by others. Like one, um, oh, I have his name written down. He said, "I know who did the murder," and he led the police right to, um, gosh, I have it in my notes. Right. I think Ant- uh, Antron McCrae's. That was Clarence Thomas, not the Clarence Thomas we all think about, but Antron McCrae's house and. They said, show us what you were wearing that night. And he pulled out a whole bunch of muddy clothes. And just to note that the jogger was found, um, you know, covered in mud, um, wrapped up in her own T-shirt. Her eye, um, her eye was closed. She sustained brain damage, massive blood loss. And they had and door and all and the sameness of all the confessions. They all say. Oh, gosh. You know, they all talk about how they hit her over the head with a pipe and other um, other of the people they assaulted that night with a pipe. And those injuries are consistent with that. And also their own seminal fluid was um, found on two of the convicted. So one in his underwear and one on his jacket. So they never explained that. Like, how did that happen? If you were just enjoying the night air, how did that happen? And they were all also identified by each other. Some of them didn't know each other. Right. This was a, some of them were friends. Some of them they knew from the neighborhood. So it's, you know, it's one of those massively confusing things to try to figure out who did what. Right. And Kevin know, Richardson, and one of them actually grabbed towards his eye and said she scratched him. Right. So he, and he had so he had a scratch on his face two days later. And it's kind of confusing, too, because they arrested more. It got whittled down to what is known as the Central Park Five. But there were other people who pled out to different charges. But the, right. the original Central Park Five is Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McKay, Mcray, Yusef Salam and Corey Wise. Right. Isn't that? Yeah. What, that's, but there were others. Kev- Kevin Richardson's scratch is a perfect example how the story has changed over time. Right. Right. So they, the police asked him, how did you get that scratch? Well, I got that scratch when I was arrested by the police officer half an hour, by the way, after the, after the fact, you know, after it got, um, so, and, uh, they said, well, show us the police officer that did this to you. And then he said, and then he backed down from that, that claim then he gave a confession with his father present. He asked his father to leave. And he then admitted without his father's presence 
to the rape of the Central Park jogger. Right. So, but pretty it, interesting. It is interesting, but the actual, yeah. So yeah, so they were involved in this kind of gang a- attack on her, and th- those are the actual facts. They were uh, they were convicted. I think all five of them. This one guy, Lopez, uh, pled out to a lesser charge, if I remember. Right, burglary. Uh, burglary. But they were all convicted, served around five, six, seven years generally, were let out. And then, and it, yeah. And they, like Donald Trump was involved. He put something like a death penalty thing out. Uh, right, like which page. never mentioned the Central Park jogger. But okay, now it's all about, you know, it's all about the Central Park Five, you know, right. now that, that, I mean, he was talking about the violence in the city, and which is interesting because they, the Central Park Five supporters want to have it both ways, saying the violence in the city was enormous, but that Trump, and I hate, you know, I, I always hate supporting any politician or agreeing with them, but, you know, that Trump was wrong to put out an ad saying we have to stop this violence in the city, and my answer is to bring back the death penalty. Right. And the interesting, also interesting thing about this case is that everybody focuses on the Central Park Five, which is important, but other people were convicted for the assaults of that night. So the other violent acts, um, Briscoe, Jermaine Robinson. So these other guys also, you know, spent one or two years in jail or something like that. So, but, uh, you know, so they were tried. Uh, I think they were found guilty. I mean, they were all all obviously not um, adults, so they got kind of uh, juvenile sentencing, five to ten years each. I think was right. Fifteen, out. yeah, fifteen. Right. They did no no one did more than fifteen. Which, when you read the when you read the court uh, transcripts, is really they got off easy, in my opinion, for think, nearly killing someone. I think you're uh, right. for nearly killing multiple people, really. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. So they were prosecuted. The, the chief prosecutor was Fairstein. She was head of the sexual crimes unit. So she uh-huh. was it. And then there was another one, Letterer, who was in the movie. But the film, uh, when they see us, she's like actively involved at the police station, which isn't plausible at all. There's no pictures of her. I don't think if I looked at those interviews, it was all done by Letterer, right? Right. Okay, right, so, and who's had to step down from Columbia Law School. Right, and Fairstein, I think she was very involved at her from her college, which was, uh, I can't, can't remember what college it was, but she's had, you know, pretty serious consequences from this film alone, just from this film, which is interesting, too, for people who don't know, and I didn't know until I researched this, but there was another film by Ken Burns of Civil War fame and, you know, famed documentarian. He did it with his daughter, Sarah called the Central Park Five. Did you watch and that? I did watch that. And it, it was so interesting to me watching that that documentary or pseudo-documentary, really, is that um, they sound so much like the West Memphis Three. They say the same things. I just confessed to get out of there. They kept telling me, the, they kept telling me I was guilty. I didn't know anything about anything. Um, but they describe the events of the night walking through Central Park and they keep running into these same, <laughs> maybe they're same, maybe they're different group of violent kids and watching these kids commit violence. And, you know, they moved wow. from first, they attacked one guy. He looked like a bum. He was carrying food over from the West side. 
And that was Diaz, the first man they attacked, who they called the bum, right? And they poured beer, after attacking him, they poured beer over them. And they were so violent towards him. One, um, I think it was Santana said, I thought they were going to kill the man. So, you know, they're watching, they describe all the violence as if somebody else did it, you know, watching it. And instead of like leaving the park or, you know, I, I don't know if you could expect them to call in any of those crimes, they continue to. And Central Park is two and a half uh, miles long, uh, half a mile wide. <laughs> the chances of running in to all the places where all this violence is committed, just every time, they're always somehow there watching it, you know? But it's not involved, strange. yeah. So right, the not story involved changer. at all. But that's totally different from their their testimonies or their statements, their videotaped statements that exactly. are still extant. So there's real inconsistencies about their stories. 20 years later, you know, it's, uh, it sounds and, a lot like the West Memphis. And so, what, and so what sort of um, kind of cleared it all up for everybody is when one um, guy, Reyes, who was doing time for raping a mother in front of her two children and torturing her, he was in prison with um, Corey Wise, and, who was convicted for, for this crime. And he admitted to doing all of it alone, which is not possible with the doctors. The jogger's doctors don't think it's possible. The jogger doesn't think it's possible. It doesn't fit the rest of the evidence and it doesn't match any of the statements. But he did everything alone. And they were lucky because there was this unknown DNA that was on the jogger's sock. It's often written as that it was the DNA inside her that was all inconclusive that matched Reyes. But while Wise and Reyes were in prison, they were constantly fighting. And Wise was constantly threatening his gang that he was going to beat up Reyes. Reyes confessed to everything, doing it alone and hurting the jogger with a big, knocking her out with a giant stick. And that was like, you know, one of the most implausible among many things in his confession. But it was accepted. And I think that we have a big problem with kind of group crimes. I mean, if you look at Amanda Knox or if you look at the West Memphis Three, supporters will always say one person did it. End of story, you know? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So Reyes comes in. It's kind of like the CSI effect, his DNA. Therefore, he did it and nobody else was involved. And that supposedly exonerates that. But there is other things. There was an Armstrong report. That three guys came in and, you know, basically said... NYPD, yeah, in right, 2003, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's inconsistencies in statements, but they, I think they wrote, the general consistency that ran through their descriptions is everything is the same. She was knocked down on the road, dragged in the woods, hit and molested, sexually abused by some, left on semi-conscious. So they all said the same thing, right? Right, right. Um, and... And it just, interestingly enough, Sarah Burns was working as a paralegal for the lawyers who sued the city and got $41 million. Wow. So I she wrote that. a book. Her father made a documentary on it. And all of, um, it was really interesting to find that most of the five have given money to the Innocence Project. And Yusuf Salam was given an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award uh, in 2016 by Obama. Wow, I and didn't know that. he was also just signed by Creative Artists Agency, which which is a great agency, you know, for a um, he now has an agent and he gives speeches about his great injustice and why I think he is picked out 
um, for the most accolades and the most attention is because he was underage and his mother stopped the confession. So he never made a signed confession. He never made a videotaped confession. So um, it's, you know, the hardest thing to prove his involvement more than the others, you know? Fascinating. They you all see, implicate him, but it's, it's harder to prove. Right. I mean, that's like the top, one of the top, if not the top agency in the U.S. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's just incredible. The, uh, yeah, and so, the, and it was interesting, too, is that they were trying to get money while Bloomberg was uh, mayor, and it just happened. I think that the money was paid out right after de Blasio or whatever his original real name is, Veltman or something like that, um, right after he became mayor. Like, in a couple months, the $40 million got paid out. So, to Bloomberg's credit, his administration thought that they could win the case, you know, if there was a civil suit. And it's mm -hmm. interesting, it's a statement that you made earlier in the, our conversation, is that uh, de Blasio never, there was never any court uh, proceeding. They just paid out the $40 million. So there's never any retread of the facts or any, uh, you know, uh, any type of oppositional from, a you know, defense and prosecutor people talking to each other. It was incredible. Right. And, you know, the idea that New York City PD, that you could announce, that a DA could announce, this is in, if they see us, you know, find me black kids in Harlem, innocent black kids, and just bring them in. If you could announce that in a police precinct in New York and no one says anything, I mean, we're very upfront in New York. We don't, we don't play around. Nobody says, you know, hey, what? There's nobody, there's the whole, the whole precinct is white and nobody says anything, right. you know? I mean, it's but, just like unbelievable. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because it wasn't all white. There was one guy, 29-year-old right. Eric Reynolds, who has really kind of a voice in the wilderness. He keeps saying over and over, and he's on, I think he was on Smirconish. I think he was on some of these other things. There's an hour-long discussion. You're, you're clicking something with your microphone. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's right. But there, uh, but he was on like TV, and he keeps saying the same thing: like these are all legit. This isn't a racial crime. We, you know, I was the one who collared three of the guys, and these were the ones who did it. He's never changed, and he he gave firsthand kind of accounts of the entire, you know, police investigation and procedure. And he said that there's also the judge put a gag order on the state from talking about this. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. And he also said that he wasn't named in any of the civil suits because it would have contradicted their narrative that it was a racist, uh, you know, uh, rest. Because if they named him, there was a black guy and it would have contradicted their narrative. So that was also a very interesting statement that Reynolds said. But nobody really wants to put him on TV and talk about this. And, uh, you know, when you look at all these facts, I watched this DuVernay on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah from May 21st. And she's just... She just got her statements, you know. She's got it all. Oh, yeah, these confessions were coerced. And I'm watching the confessions looking for the coercion, you know. And it's just not there. So, the, And it's grotesque to see Trevor Noah just kind of smile along. And um, and Oprah Winfrey was one of the people who, uh, you know, was the producers for When They See Us. And so she's been on stage with the Central Park Five. And one guy's making a black power fist sign in the air. And it's like... Hey guys, this this isn't this isn't the real story. You know, the real story was uh, happened. You know, back in 1989. It's incredible. And I told you I was so shocked that Oprah Winfrey, because when I was working at Oprah Magazine, 
it was known around the office, <clears throat> excuse me, that she didn't want to uh, do any articles about um, convicted people that she felt she had been burned by them in the past and that they couldn't be trusted to tell the truth and, you know, or to even change. And so, you know, um, that I was just surprised that all of a sudden there she is um, not only supporting men who committed such senseless violence on so many people, but a woman. And, and then there's a woman filmmaker again. So right. it's, and I'm just kind of, again, disappointed well, Duvernay, <laughs> sex for supporting these violent men. Yeah. Duvernay has a history, you know, she's done what she do Selma and she did the 13th amendment, which I watched uh, regrettably where she conflates kind of slavery with the, like a high, a high, uh, incarceration rates of black males as if that's a form of slavery which i think was the general gist if i remember correctly and i've heard other people critique selma as being a little too lurid much like when they see us so she uh yeah it was kind of gross just to watch her on on daily show you know not having any uh anybody to contradict or any type of confrontation so um yeah it's a real it's kind of it's a disappointment so the uh, there was also another thing. Antron McRae, just to add a little note, he actually confessed to somebody else. They had him confessing to Melanie T Jackson, telling he was he was involved. So it wasn't just the police. These guys were talk telling stories. So it's uh, it's all in all just a big disappointment. Is there anything else that you'd like to to cover about the Central Park Five that we missed? Just that the documents are incredibly laborious them to to go through because they've cut them all up into sections so like no other court transcripts i've ever seen so instead of being able to read a court case from page one to the end the opening statement is filed under o you know it's all cut up <laughs> it's, it's just there's two hundred thousand pages of documents and it's so overly cut up and i know that there's um some of it had to be um for different reasons um kept sealed uh but it's it's really hard to even get us to it's I, I don't know if it's on purpose or if it's just there's so many and and this it, they got a horrible system but it's really hard to to read so i think most people won't and so that's really beneficial to their supporters and it, it becomes a legend right like right. liberty balance you know, like when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. It's, that's that's now. This is now the legend is now fact. The legend is now fact. They're each seven million dollars richer, and you know, going around just professing their innocence everywhere without really anybody contradicting them. It's kind of like it's the West Memphis Three all over again, and you just don't see anybody go. Um, hold on, didn't you guys repeat? Uh, you know, your confessions in your parole hearings. You know, all kinds of stuff that they. They should have just professed their innocence. Like, it's just off the charts. Um, but uh, Well, I think it means also that you're a, a racist if you bring, you know, it's just been so overly politicized that you can't really talk about the facts without it meaning that you're some part of some kind of political party. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, it was interesting, though. I had a discussion with my best friend and I, and he's a West Memphis three supporter. And I said, Oh, you know, I'm, you know, researching the central park five and I fully expected him to say it was a travesty of justice. And, and he said, no. And he lives in New York mm -hmm. for a long time too. And he said, Oh no, wilding. Oh yeah. They're guilty. So I was really shocked. I wonder how many people in New York, um, kind of, 
you know, don't believe them. Yeah, you had sent me an article from Ann Coulter, and I think she got her facts straight. She's actually really good on Epstein, too. But, uh, you know, some people, uh, you, you know, are able to collate all of the the elements of these long cases that have lasted for decades. But i got to give credit to Ann Coulter. So, um, yeah, and also Epstein, maybe that's just a good transition to talk about this news that happened last week, which I was surprised about, which is... The surprise arrest of Jeffrey Epstein at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey and the, you know, uh, breaking down of his so-called mansion, if it's he owns it or who else, Wexler owns it or whatever. But uh, any thoughts on Epstein? Well, I think it's really interesting to see the amount of press coverage because I was saying to you before we recorded that in the beginning it was just Opperman and you and Pierce Redmond and wherever you could find little pieces of information, uh, Miami Herald, about this case, about Epstein at all. It was pretty much a a tiny fringe story, right? Yeah, absolutely. If that. I mean, it was just like, okay, something important. I I don't even know if people had all the facts, but I think the Miami Herald was really the beginning of it, you know, which was mentioned in the uh, press conference that they were clearly reading some of the the journalism, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't even a big story at all. I did an interview with Derek Bros, who actually went over and interviewed Edwards, who was just on CBS today. So these guys are now really in the mass media, people who are just merely fringe interviews or people who were, you know, just smaller YouTube channels were interviewing them. So it's, it's really, a, uh, quite a change. So you see this, this, uh, <laughs> blow up and then yeah then mike cernovich takes credit for the tried to take credit for the whole thing by saying that his involvement in the Ghislaine maxwell uh jufre defamation seat has led to the release of documents that ended up to the to getting epstein arrested but the documents haven't been released yet so i don't know right i don't understand that logic uh and and can you explain a little bit how his connection to Dershowitz? Yes. So he, the the original lawsuit was between Ghislaine Maxwell in 2015. She was sued by one of the victims, the alleged victim. Her name is uh, Virginia Roberts. She got married. She lives in Australia. She has kids. Her her new name is Jufre, G-I-U-F-F-R-E. And she sued uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the daughter of Robert Maxwell, uh, also known in one book as Israel Super Spy. But um, she sued her because Ghislaine Maxwell said that she was lying, that uh, Virginia Roberts was lying. So they got some big wig, I mean, heavy duty lawyers are involved in that case. Is the boy Schiller and this guy Cass Cassell, who you went to one of these hearings and we recorded an interview about that on my YouTube channel. But uh, so that case was the original case. And who joined that case was uh, Dershowitz. Dershowitz joined and then uh, Mike Cernovich joined as well. And then the Miami Herald joined into that case as well. And their their interest in the case was trying to obtain information that was um, kept privy by the court. I mean, basically these Jane and John Doe's. Uh, are protected from uh, public eye and public scrutiny and adversarial scrutiny because of their age when these things happen. And they probably are in there 
to verify Virginia Roberts' story, not just her statement. So, and she has said, I think either in the court docs or publicly, that, that her and Dershowitz had sex six times. So she's accusing Dershowitz of being involved with her. And there's another girl who came forward. Her name is Ransom, who's also accused of having uh, Dershowitz had sex with her when she was underage. So um, that is the involvement of Dershowitz in, and um, Cernovich. But the, the interesting aspect of their involvement in that case is that they two, those two know each other. And Cernovich has quoted, has, has made a quote of stating that his reason for getting involved in the law was because of Dershowitz. And Dershowitz was in his, mo- in his film uh, with, uh, with Cernovich. And I think it was called Hoaxed or something like that. But so they are friends. There's pictures of them together. And uh, it's actually a really interesting uh, filing or something called the response and opposition to motion to intervene. So the motion that these guys put in was called the motion to intervene. And this response by Boy Schiller included a lot of Mike Cernovich's very um, unsympathetic towards women's statements, which is a nice way of putting it. But they also show him and, and Dershowitz together. And also, I mean, they just show that uh, they use the word slut shaming that you and I have talked about. So um, here, here's a quote. Cernovich appears to have a personal interest in slut shaming women. Multiple websites, including Wikipedia, captured various tweets. And there's also an article out there, which I think you and I have shared, that also shows Dershowitz involved in the same behavior. But this, this is important to remember is that all of this, all of these actions or all of this, this motion to intervene took place in an environment of no media oversight. So Cernovich was talking about it publicly and Dershowitz was not talking about it publicly. And uh, so that's the kind of connection between Dershowitz and Cernovich. They know each other. And I believe that they were involved, is my opinion, the reason they were intervening without really any media oversight or media analysis, the reason they're intervening is they want to uncover other people involved in that suit. And in my opinion, they want to either expose them or harass them. That was their, I think that that's their actual intent but that's in my opinion they're not stating that intent publicly well Dershowitz has a history of finding victims going on their social media and finding things as benign as them smoking marijuana and using it as evidence that they're a terrible person and using it to intimidate them Um, and he also doesn't stop with the witness uh, with the victims he also um defames their their parents in in one case wow. right i mean it sounds just, familiar yeah but i think that might be one yeah. of the elements of why epstein got the lenient sentence in 2008 is that dershowitz and star and black and all of these big it's kind of like oj where you get these super lawyer defense guys to intimidate everybody and so i think that this whole intervening was might have been part and there's an interesting aspect of that because Dershowitz himself has said he was Epstein's lawyer then about a year ago. I can't remember within the last six months he said he was Epstein's lawyer. So when he was intervening in this case of Jelaine Maxwell, was he still being retained by Epstein? I think that's an important question. Very, very important question. And he and he and he seems to uh, assert his lawyer client privilege whenever it's convenient. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um. 
Yeah, so very auspicious things are happening. Um, so, you know, and then... And more I mean, victims are coming forward. Did you... Ha- right. Were you familiar with the two victims that had that came... Uh, that were in the press who were at the bail hearing, Jeffrey I, Epstein's bail hearing? I think those were one some of the original ones that were uh, interviewed by the Miami Herald, but there was a new one that happened in New York. Her name was A-R-A-O-Z, and she said that she was abused by Epstein when she was underage. So that was a new one. And then I just read an article today in the Mirror UK Mirror that said that there's 14 more people that, that have come forward that were original. So um, there's still more facts being assembled, clearly being assembled by the prosecutors. So I would, you know, I think a lot of people are very nervous. And you and I talked about how that there's an aspect of this case that is involving the public corruption unit. So something has involved the public corruption unit whose purpose is really to uh, ferret out and investigate and prosecute misdeeds by people who are in the public service. So it would be a politician, lawyer, something like that. So their involvement in this Epstein case is uh, very important to, to note. So there's a lot of things that, uh, that are happening. So my question is, do you think Acosta, do you think they dug up some dirt on Acosta and that's why he agreed to that really lenient deal for Jeffrey Epstein? I don't know. You know, one of the important things to remember is that it's like two administrations ago. So it's under the Bush administration. We know that Epstein was an informant for Mueller, for his FBI. So there might have been some type of leniency, things that we don't know. But the fact that it's Mueller, the Bush administration, that there's an intelligence aspect to these cases of God only knows which um, which agency or which involvement, even the FBI. So I think that the leniency involves a bunch of other people. And I, Trump, I think Trump has kind of hinted at that yesterday. Acosta just uh, resigned today, which is, uh, what is it, July 12th, 2019. So he just resigned today. But yesterday, Trump said there was a lot of people involved. And I think he was kind of signaling that there's people involved in trying to minimize the, you know, the to ensure the sweetheart deal of Epstein in 2008. And those people, I don't think, have really been uh, uncovered. Who else was advising? I mean, who was the head of the Justice Department at that time? And who, who was, I mean, I think Acosta unfortunately was in a difficult spot because he's probably having to take orders from, you know, the head of the justice department. Mm. Mm. So, so I have kind of a broader question for you, which is, do, you know, Jerry Sandusky, right. He's exposed, you know, right around the same age, right. Wasn't he in his sixties and, right, yeah. and Epstein, same kind of thing. Yeah. Epstein's he's, what? 68, 66, 66. Okay. So is, I guess this is more of a conspiratorial thought kind of question. Is, is it, I mean, it seems like these guys are just really brought down at the end of their pedophile career. Is it sort of like at the end of their career and they're no longer useful to whatever agencies and just like send them off to the glue factory kind of thing? Maybe that's the way they solve the problem, right? Put them in jail and then just, I mean, I don't think. Epstein's ever getting out of jail. I don't think they'll agree to any type of bail for him because of no. these other things that are coming up. So, you know, his his malfeasance has gone back for two decades. So he got started, you know, in his late four, at least his late forties. You know, who knows what happened in Dalton, this the kind of elite prep school that he was involved with. Um, so, yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. I you know, 
I, I think that, you know, for him to be arrested, they had to have been investigating him for some time. And an investigation that was taking place that um, hadn't been gone for months, you know, and has no connection with Cernovich or Dershowitz's involvement in any civil trial for sure. So um, his, Mike Cernovich grandstanding is, is absurdity that he, I mean, the inter- one of the funny things about Cernovich, dude, just to go back, is that he commended himself. So on his website, he wrote something on one thing. Mike Cernovich uh, helps get Jeffrey Epstein arrested, and then he reposted his own post on his website. So maybe, right, his yeah. own tweet, wasn't yeah, exactly. It? Yeah, it was, just, yeah. It was so the funny. like the biggest backslap of his own hand ever, you know. But uh, so I think they've been investigating Epstein for a while, and. Uh, you know, I think Bob Barr came in. I mean, some people have stated that the investigative started under, under session. So um, at a certain point, they just pulled the trigger, and that was it. Now the investigation has moved to New Mexico. They're talking about stuff in New Mexico. Okay. Um, the other thing is that, you know, they, the, they, the Cassell response. Oh, no. So this wasn't the response. So, okay. So then what happened after Ghislaine Giuffre had their civil suit. I think what happened is, is Dershowitz went in public and said that Jufre is a liar. And so that was a defamation suit. So there's another suit between Roberts, Jufre, and Dershowitz. And in that filing uh, by that involved Castle, there was a picture of all of the movements of Jeffrey Epstein. So he's bouncing around between his island in the Bahamas, um, New Mexico, Florida, New York, but also in Europe. But one of the interesting stops on all of his bounces is North Africa, Tangier in um, in Morocco. And I'm like, well, what the heck is he doing in Tangier? And the only references I know of Tangier are L. Ron Hubbard and, and Alistair Crowley, who went there to procure little boys. And I'm like, if that's what Epstein is also involved in, things are going to get a lot darker, a lot, very fast. Wow. Yeah. And, oh... Oh, yeah, I was just trying to think of Joe Orton. I thought the playwright also went to vacationed in Tangier Burroughs, for that same exact person. Yeah, Burroughs purpose, and yeah. all these guys. Like, Burroughs, you know, and that was just what, they, like, uh, the, Hubbard used to take his boat and stop along Algeria. And, and that was kind of just known that in that culture, different sensibility. But uh, if, if Epstein's involved in that, then the, the sex trafficking becomes international. I wouldn't be surprised if Interpol is involved in this. And I actually saw something pretty fascinating. I follow Benjamin Netanyahu on Twitter. And the day that Epstein got arrested, he put something out like, uh, and I wish I could speak Hebrew, but I could tell that it was Epstein and Ehud Barak, who was the former prime minister at one point, And he's being quizzed on his relationship with Epstein. So Netanyahu's people were on top of it right away about wow. uh, the tie be- between Ehud Barak and Epstein. So it, this has very definitely has international elements, especially if you involve Prince Andrew and things like that. So this story really, um, their people are going to do a lot of work and a lot of things are going to get uncovered. And they're still asking, and victims are still coming forward and they're still asking for victims to come forward. Right. So. so, I mean, I just saw Edwards on CBS Today asking for victims to come forward, come on forward. So, um and the, the victims have excellent lawyers. I mean, boys, boys was involved in busting Avenatti, the joke uh, savior for the Democrats. But he, I mean, the funny thing about them, about the boys people, is that 
if you look at the, I don't know if we talked about this, I don't remember, but but Avenatti threatened, I think it was David Boys about their Nike people that if they didn't pay him off, he would get them criminally, which you can't do, it's illegal. You can't threaten criminal prosecution. So they told it, he left, they, they threatened them, left, and then they invited him back. But this time the FBI was there and recorded him threatening Boys. Show. And that came into the Nexium trial. So, Interesting. you know. Oh. Yeah, that was the he was um, Claire Bronfman's lawyer for a minute and oh a half, my gosh. and he came in to negotiate a deal with Garagos for Claire Bronfman with some kind of information that he thought New York State would be interested in. And now, was that the Nike information? Um, it's been written; it has been. I don't know, but it was right around that time, yeah. and uh, it's just very interesting. And you know, all those. All the Nexium sentencing has been, you know, just postponed indefinitely. So we don't know if more charges are coming or what. So and you made I'm that. waiting. You... The people like me who've been following this R. Kelly story for a long time, we've been waiting for this. You know, this I has mean, been way too long coming. Way too long coming. It's an, I know inc- the wheels inc- of justice move slowly, but right. You know. But uh, yeah, the, Ranieri's never getting out of jail. Epstein's never going to get out of jail. But um, I don't think R. Kelly, but why is this New York and Nexus now? How did they all become the the jurisdiction where these guys are all going down? I mean, I guess it makes sense for Ranieri, but, you know, Epstein, I people just never really thought, never really attached Epstein, I think, in the public mind, at least before his arrest to New York. It was always uh, Pedophile Island and Florida. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it, we have in New York, uh, we have like we win 90 percent of our cases. So uh, they don't have like statistically a great chance. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Renary already got convicted, but Epstein and I think Epstein will plead out, don't you? I think he'll try to accept a plea. I hear that he's trying to negotiate. He's going to give up names to negotiate a five year deal if he can get it. I think that's what his attorneys are. Reed Weingarten, Reed, uh, who blurted out <laughs> to the court that. Um, uh, sexual relations with uh, an underage girl, statutory rape. Like he said that, he, he kind of made a mistake. I think he might be past his prime, but we'll see what happens. I don't think, I don't, I honestly don't think at this point with this much press that these attorneys will plead him lower. I think that they'll look for, I mean, there's so many violations that he's done that uh, I don't anticipate them giving us, it's not going to be what happened in Florida. And I have to actually commend the um, prosecutors for the Ranieri trial because I think they were very successful in many ways. They got the real malefactor, um, the real head of the, the dragon, and all these other people who were involved in wrongdoing, you know, incurred criminal penalties. So I, I think that that case was very successful in, in the way it was when the very little few leaks. Like I expected uh, a lot more leaks about the information, but there were no leaks. So uh, kudos to them. Yeah, I'd like to have seen Claire Bronfman, of course, get a lot more time than she, than she did, did uh, and and she may still. So okay. we'll see. Right. Well, the sentencing, right? So, I mean, uh, to pay you know millions of dollars for a lower, you know, she basically bought her way out of a longer prison sentence. It just felt so unfair to me and and many other people. But the but but the the amount of work of that case. And they did a great job. So yeah. that is my one complaint is really the Claire Bronfman. What got do you th- such an easy, what, easy deal. What do you think that she deserves? I thought she deserved 10 years. 
at least. Hmm. What did she? I don't remember her. She, I mean, she just was the. I mean, she was really the muscle. The her money mm -hmm. the, was the muscle and her her resources that made Nexium such a um, what do you call it dangerous enterprise that they they not only they were going around um, spying on people. You know, doing massive, frivolous, and intimate lawsuits meant to intimidate people. Right. And what really hasn't come out is all the kind of favors that she bought locally, so that when people would complain, it would not only be ignored; they would be gone after by you know New York's state officials. So, what what was going on there? That never. I really thought that would come out in the trial. It did not. But what came out in the trial was the massive amount of spying, not on ne just on Nexium members, but, um, you know, on all their um, enemies. Enemies. And, right. Yeah. And, and getting private, you know, private invest, really Scientology style. Not only, and that was another thing I was really surprised in that trial, how much they stole from Scientology, not just in content of their material, but in having cameras on their, uh, on their, on the members' homes and, you know, spying, the sort of culture of spying and secrecy was very right. similar to, Snitch, to Scientology. Keep the folder of information, keep the collateral, right? That's, that was very Scientology. Scientology has a folder on everybody's confession that they keep, you know, so they try to get them to confess their worst sins and then they keep it for you. So that's why... A lot of people in Scientology are still in Scientology. It's not because they don't want to leave. It's because they can't. Like, and, uh, and that's also in the early, you know, the next, you have to fill out these personality questionnaires um, and very detailed, um, you know, questionnaires about your life. And you have to give over a lot of very personal uh, information that, you know, that can be used to keep you in the cult. And keep you afraid and used against you. It's very, very, very exactly the same as Scientology. Yeah. Well, we've covered uh, the Central Park Five, a little bit of Epstein, a little bit of R. Kelly. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything? Where, where can people see your um, or listen to your excellent podcast? Um, I'm on iTunes. I'm on Spreaker, and I'm on YouTube. Um, Roberta Glass True Crime Report. So awesome. And what and. The, and there's another Bob Ruff uh, has given up on the Melgar case, right? So now he's moving on to another case that has been, uh, you know, uh, in court, in the criminal courts over and over again. So we can expect another 60 hours of uh, retread of a, of a criminal case that shouldn't be done. I can't remember the guy's name. It's Jamie Snow. It was Jamie actually Snow. A, a case. It's an episode that I've been working on for a little, for a little while because... Um, uh, Alexa, who I do a bunch of different episodes with, mostly about Adnan Syed, she's from that same area, and she is very familiar with his family. And he is no, and he's being touted by the Innocence Project as this family man, when in fact he's this cracked out guy who likes to rob gas stations, who took the family Christmas presents and, and uh, pawned them for crack. But uh, I'm sure you won't hear that on Bob Ruff's no, podcast. No, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm already. So we were laughing about laughing about you know the kind of stuff that's come out from the innocent, the kind of videos um, in support of him that have come out in the Innocence Project. So hopefully that'll be an episode that'll come out soon. Cool. And it'll man. be interesting to see how he spins that. 
Awesome. Okay, Roberta Glass of the True Crime Report. Thank you so much for being on the show. 